You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 376 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, with the last episode we got Pickett's Charge started, and with this show we want to continue with that story. On the left, as you guys know, Pettigrew's line was in trouble from the very beginning. Brock and Braw's Brigade of Virginians was handicapped by poor leadership and low morale, and their disjointed advance came to a screeching halt when Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Sawyer aggressively pushed the 8th Ohio forward and opened fire on the hapless Virginians. Brock and Braw's men panicked and, according to Sawyer, quote, fled in the wildest confusion. The panicked retreat of Brock and Bra's Virginians exposed the left of Pettigrew's next-in-line unit, which was Davis's brigade of Mississippians and North Carolinians. Sawyer promptly wheeled the 8th Ohio so it was facing due south and aligned behind a board fence. Resting their muskets on the fence, the Buckeyes opened a deadly fire straight into Davis's left flank. Hardest hit was Davis's leftmost regiment, the 11th Mississippi. The 11th was a veteran outfit, but it had missed the fighting on the first day of the battle because it had been detailed to guard wagons. But the 11th paid its dues here on July 3rd, when it would lose 312 of its 592 men. Meanwhile, down on the charge's southern flank, a broadside of musketry tore into Kemper's brigade and Pickett's division when some Federals, Vermonters led by George Stannard, maneuvered so as to pour fire into the Virginians' vulnerable right flank. So this was very similar to what happened at the other end of the field with the 8th Ohio. What happened with both the 8th Ohio and Stannard's Vermonters showed that James Longstreet, who was in overall command of the assault, hadn't taken the measures he should have to protect the charge's flanks. And so, when opportunities presented themselves to hit those vulnerable flanks, enterprising officers on the federal side acted aggressively to seize those chances, with the result that the Confederates paid the price for Longstreet's negligence. At any rate, Kemper's brigade, having executed its sharp left oblique as it continued toward the federal center, 
and then struck on its right by the musketry of Stannard's Vermonters, now crowded north towards Garnett's men. Garnett's men were still sliding to their left, advancing toward the angle, still aiming to close that gap between Pickett's division and Pettigrew's division before the Confederate attack hit the Federal line. Meanwhile, Armistead's brigade was still advancing, coming up behind Garnett and Kemper. The sliding to the left of Pickett's division did finally close that gap between the two wings of the charge. As Stephen Sears writes in his book on Gettysburg, quote, The Confederates now had a united front, roughly on the line of the Emmitsburg Road, but this by itself did not produce a united result. The two wings of the grand charge would have very different tales to tell in the next hectic, hellish minutes. The left wing of the great charge, made up of Pettigrew's troops, would stall at the Emmitsburg Road, which proved to be both literally and figuratively a barricade to their further advance. Right. You see, to the south, where Pickett's men crossed the Emmitsburg Road, the stout fences that lined the roadway had, for the most part, been pulled down during yesterday's fighting. But this was not the case here on Pettigrew's front. The fences along this northern section of the road, post and rail on the west side of the roadway, post and plank on the east, were intact and too strongly built and the enemy's fire too hot for the men to stop long enough to pull them down. They had to climb over the fences instead. Ahead of them, beyond the roadway and fences, was 200 yards of open, rising ground, bisected by yet another rail fence, and then the stone wall behind which waited Alexander Hayes' densely packed lines of Yankee infantry. As Pettigrew's Confederates reached the Emmitsburg Road, that stone wall was suddenly wreathed in smoke and ablaze with what appeared to be one continuous sheet of flame as Hayes' men opened fire. The Federal volley flashed out from the stone wall, not in a single cataclysmic crash, but rather in a long, rolling crescendo of thousands of musket shots within the space of a few dozen seconds, as regiment after regiment triggered its fire into the advancing rebel ranks. Most of Hayes' men were firing off the stockpiles of loaded muskets they had prepared. To one Federal officer, quote, the incessant rattle of musketry sounded like the grinding of some huge mill. Lieutenant John Moore in the 7th Tennessee in Fry's Brigade later remembered how, quote, the time it took to climb to the top of the fence seemed to me an age of suspense. It was not a leaping over, it was rather an insensible tumbling to the ground. As Fry's Alabamans and Tennesseans clambered over the first fence, one of them said that the bullets striking the wood, quote, rattled with the distinctness of large raindrops pattering on a roof. But not all of the bullets struck wood, of course. A federal soldier on Cemetery Ridge noted how the rebels, quote, dropped from the fence as if swept by a gigantic sickle. Burkett Fry never made it to the road, falling just short of it with a bullet in the thigh. His men plunged ahead, tumbling over the first fence, 
dashing across the roadway and scrambling over the second fence while bullets cut down dozens of men at every step. Others, unable to make themselves go any farther, dropped prone and made use of the meager cover of the roadway. The well-traveled roadbed here was some two feet below the road edges and was the first shelter of any kind these men had encountered since their march began on Seminary Ridge. To make matters worse for Pettigrew's men, the incessant volleys of federal musketry were joined by a searing barrage of canister from the immediate front. The source of this canister was George Woodruff's Battery I, 1st U.S., whose six Napoleons were posted in front of Ziegler's Grove with a clear field of fire toward the Emmitsburg Road. Just to the Alabamans and Tennesseans left, the story was much the same in the North Carolina Brigade that had been Pettigrew's before he inherited the division. Colonel James Marshall was in command of the brigade here on July 3rd. Marshall was 24 years old, a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute, and a grandson of John Marshall, the long-serving and highly influential Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Near the Emmitsburg Road, James Marshall, advancing on horseback, was struck simultaneously by two bullets in the head and killed instantly. All four of Marshall's regimental commanders also went down. With Brockenbrough's brigade having already been driven from the field, and with Fry and Marshall both down, that left Joe Davis as the only one of Pettigrew's brigade commanders still standing. Johnston Pettigrew was wounded as well when a shell fragment shattered his hand and wrist. Isaac Trimble, bringing up his two brigades behind Pettigrew's line, later wrote that in those moments so many of Pettigrew's men were being struck down that they, quote, seemed to sink into the earth under the tempest of fire poured into them. A sizable majority of Pettigrew's troops either would not or could not take the charge beyond the Emmitsburg Road, either because of the seeming shelter offered by the sunken roadway or the shocking number of officer casualties, or the tremendous volume of the enemy's absolutely unrelenting fire, many men simply couldn't bring themselves to climb over that second fence. Lieutenant Moore of the 7th Tennessee thought perhaps two-thirds of the troops who reached the Emmitsburg Road never advanced beyond it. Moore recalled how, quote, I know when I reached the top of the second fence, there seemed to remain a line of battle in the road. But some of Pettigrew's men, perhaps a thousand in all, somehow did summon up the courage to clamber over that second fence and keep moving forward toward the enemy line. Their alignment was gone now, but their determination to close with the Yankees was not. In small bands clustered around battle flags and following shouting officers, they pushed on into the heart of the storm. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. On the federal side, Alexander Hayes' tactic of crowding every man in his two brigades right into the front line at the stone wall north of the angle was proving to be murderously effective. The 260 yards of wall Hayes was defending appeared to be one solid line of musket barrels. Men were two, three, or even four deep behind it. The result was one massive, continuous volley of musketry. Afterward, when one man examined the fence along the eastern edge of the Emmitsburg Road, he noted that one board, quote, was indeed a curiosity. It was 16 feet long, 14 inches broad, and was perforated with 836 musket balls. A soldier in the 12th New Jersey boasted to his wife in a letter three days later, quote, we opened on them, and they fell like grain before the reaper. End quote. But nevertheless, small groups of Fry's Tennesseans and Alabamans and Marshall's North Carolinians pressed forward, while to their left, a few of Davis's Mississippians rushed toward the Bryan barn at the north end of Hayes' line. As always during the Civil War in an attack, the color bearers were the focus of all eyes and the most visible targets and suffered staggering losses as a result. The 14th Tennessee and the 5th Alabama Battalion of Fry's Brigade each reached the limit of their advance behind its fourth color bearer of the day. Private Boney Smith of the 14th Tennessee carried the regiment's flag to within 80 yards of the stone wall and stood holding it there defiantly until he too was shot down. The 11th North Carolina lost all eight members of its color guard. The 26th North Carolina had lost 14 color bearers on the first day of the battle, and here on July 3rd, it lost four more and lost its flag as well. The intensity of the federal musketry and blast of canister defied belief, 
yet some of the Confederates leaned into the fire and doggedly continued forward. The carnage was simply appalling. Major Theodore Ellis of the 14th Connecticut said that after the rebels crossed the Emmitsburg Road, they, quote, seemed to melt away. Having made it beyond the road, Private James Holloway of the 7th Tennessee was forced by the sheer volume of the incoming fire to drop down and hug the ground with some of his comrades. When Holloway heard one man suggest they surrender, he raised up from the ground and barked, Let's never surrender! Before he could lower his head back down, a bullet shattered his skull, killing him instantly. Nearby, behind the stone wall, in the ranks of the 14th Connecticut, 18-year-old Corporal William Goodell shouted over the noise of battle, I would rather be killed than beaten today. Minutes later, the young man died, struck by a bullet as he loaded his musket. Realizing the Confederate advance here in front of him had reached its limit and stalled, Alexander Hayes decided to deliver the coup de grace to the enemy effort. He ordered two of his regiments, the 108th New York and 126th New York, as well as two guns from Woodruff's battery, to swing to the right and take up position along the Bryan farm lane, which ran westward out to the Emmitsburg Road. George Woodruff fell mortally wounded while wheeling his cannon into this new position, but soon his gunners, along with the infantrymen of the 108th and 126th New York, began raking Pettigrew's disintegrating lines with a devastating enfilading fire. Unable to breach the Federal position, and now taking fire from front and left, Pettigrew's force finally crumbled. Some of the rebels stood bravely, firing and loading their muskets, before finally retreating or raising their arms in surrender. Few, if any, of Trimble's troops, in Lowrance's and Lane's brigades, coming up behind Pettigrew's line, advanced farther than the Emmitsburg Road, where they too came under a withering fire from the Yankees to their front, and from the flanking force along the Bryan farm lane. Viewing the bloody destruction ahead, many of these North Carolinians simply turned back toward Seminary Ridge. Even the feisty Isaac Trimble, who had been so eager to get into the fight, now realized the futility of any further advance. The 61-year-old general was knocked from his horse with the wound that would later require the amputation of his left leg. As Trimble writhed in pain, and as soldiers fled past him in retreat, one of his officers asked if he ought to try and rally the men. Trimble answered, No, it's all over. Let the men go back. At about the same time that Pettigrew's line reached the Emmitsburg Road, the right wing of the Great Charge, made up of Pickett's three brigades of Virginians, surged forward toward the Federal line on Cemetery Ridge. Because they didn't have the barrier of the roadside fences to contend with, or the solid wall of enemy fire that Pettigrew's men did, the Virginians' fight would reach its climax at closer quarters with the Federals, here at the Copse of Trees and the Angle, with their course now set toward the angle and the copse of trees, 
Pickett's men continued their advance, trailing dead and wounded at every step, but pressing onward, doggedly closing the gaps torn in their ranks. Kemper rode back to find Armistead to coordinate support during the upcoming critical minutes. General, Kemper called out over the noise of battle, I am going to storm those works, and I want you to support me. Armistead said that he would, and then pointed pridefully at his brigade's line. Did you ever see anything better on parade? he asked. I never did, answered Kemper, and threw Armistead a salute before riding off. Behind his three brigades rode George Pickett and his staff. Much later, Pickett's whereabouts during the charge became a matter of some debate. Accusations of outright cowardice and even drunkenness were made by those with an axe to grind against Pickett, but such charges seem entirely baseless. George Pickett seems to have reached, at least, a point near the Nicholas Cadori farm along the Emmitsburg Road, and perhaps even went a bit farther. But his actual whereabouts were controversial enough that they were debated by the battle's veterans. It was repeatedly noted that, unlike most other mounted officers, neither Pickett nor any member of his staff were killed or wounded. We're no fans of George Pickett, but still this seems to us to be pretty slim evidence on which to base accusations of cowardice. However, Pickett's legacy nevertheless suffered from the fact that his fellow division commanders, Johnston Pettigrew and Isaac Trimble, were wounded during the charge, and of course, all three of Pickett's brigade commanders were killed or wounded. All that can be said with certainty is that Pickett certainly didn't lead the charge that bears his name from the front, but nor should he have. As a division commander, his proper place was in the rear of his brigades, so that he could observe, coordinate, and supervise their movements as best he could on the battlefield. Major Edmund Berkeley of the 8th Virginia later said, quote, I have been often asked if Pickett was in the charge. I have always replied that he was not, and in my opinion, if he had been, would have been out of his proper place. In Jeffrey Wirt's book, Gettysburg, Day 3, he writes that as Garnett's and Kemper's Virginians approached the federal line on Cemetery Ridge, they raised, in the words of John Gibbon, quote, a kind of savage roar, end quote. Other Federals, though, thought the sound was the familiar, quote-unquote, demonic yells of the Confederates. But whether Rebel Yell or unconscious primal scream, the sounds certainly came from men impelling themselves forward into a maelstrom of staggering proportions and intensity. Gibbon's Federals had been waiting for this moment. Sergeant James Wright of the 1st Minnesota later recalled how, quote, every man fired as rapidly as he could handle cartridges. Along the stone wall in front of the copse of trees, the men of Alexander Webb's Philadelphia Brigade used the muskets they had readied and stockpiled before the charge, creating a devastating and ceaseless fire. The Yankees, all veterans, fought without commands as the deafening noise of battle drowned out the shouts of their officers. 
Struggling to find the words to describe the scene, Private Cyril Tyler of the 7th Michigan, in a letter a few days later, simply told his father, quote, I never saw such slaughter. Although the musketry and storm of canister, in the words of one Massachusetts officer, quote, bowled them over like ninepins, end quote, the Virginians nevertheless kept coming. Kemper, Garnett, and their regimental officers urged the men onward. A federal sergeant compared the enemy's advance to, quote, the ocean surge upon the solid rock. As Kemper's and Garnett's Virginians rushed toward the copse of trees and the angle, the regimental ranks became, for the most part, a jumble of men, with the troops from both brigades intermingled with each other as they closed in on the federal position. Captain James T. James of the 11th Virginia would state years later, quote, I am even now almost persuaded that I was saved in that charge by some kind of miracle or other, end quote. But many others were not so fortunate. Two of James' fellow captains in the 11th, David Houston and Andrew Houston, brothers from Rockbridge County, were both hit. Andrew was captured while David died of his wounds the next day. A bullet smashed into the face of Colonel Tazewell Patton of the 7th Virginia, breaking his jaw and ripping apart his tongue. Patton was one of those who had had a premonition of his death. Captured afterward by the Federals, he would die as a prisoner on July 21st. Three color bearers of the 1st Virginia were shot down in succession. Sergeant William Lawson grabbed the flag and carried it toward the stone wall, then had his arm nearly torn off when he was hit. A private seized it and was wounded. When he fell, the flag was hidden under his body and those of others, where it was found after the charge and taken by a soldier in the 82nd New York. The entire color guard and four flag bearers in the 8th Virginia were either killed or wounded. In the 18th Virginia, after two color bearers went down, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Carrington grabbed the flag and led the regiment forward toward the stone wall until he was hit. Like Henry Carrington, the 28th Virginia's Colonel Robert Allen took up his regimental flag when his entire color guard was shot down. Allen carried it to the stone wall where he was hit. Handing the flag to a lieutenant, Allen sat down and died. As the men of Allen's 28th Virginia pressed forward, Captain Michael Spesser knelt by a fallen soldier. It was his son, Hezekiah. Private Spessard had served in the regiment under his father's command less than five months, and now his life was draining away from a mortal wound. Michael Spessard gave his son a drink of water from a canteen and then rejoined his company. He would survive the charge and make it back to Seminary Ridge, while Hezekiah would be captured and die in a Third Corps field hospital on July 19th. The Virginians from Garnett's and Kemper's brigades surged toward the stone wall held by Webb's Pennsylvanians and Cushing's pair of guns. Dick Garnett trailed them on horseback, shouting, Faster, men, faster! We're almost there! Cushing's gunners rammed in more loads of double canister when the Confederates were less than 70 yards away. The rebels could see the muzzles of the guns. One Federal artilleryman wrote, 
I remember distinctly that they pulled their caps down over their eyes and bowed their heads as men do in a hailstorm. They knew what was coming. When the gunners yanked the lanyards, dozens of Confederates went down in a gale of canister, but others kept pressing forward. Corporal Thomas Moon of Cushing's battery later admitted, I did not think there was rebels enough in the Southern Confederacy to run over that line of artillery, though they kept coming until they did run over us. It was probably about this time that Dick Garnett was killed, although men remembered seeing Garnett riding his big black horse and urging his men on as they pressed toward the stone wall. There are conflicting stories about how he died. Some accounts say he was shot, others that he was hit by a blast of canister. Whatever the cause of Garnett's death, his body was never identified. Federal Artillery Chief Henry Hunt later told one of Pickett's staff officers, Walter Harrison, that he made a, quote, diligent search in person for Garnett's body the day after the battle, but could not identify it. He remained unrecognizable by anyone among the many dead and was doubtless buried in the trenches near the spot where he fell. James Kemper also went down about this time or shortly thereafter. He was shot from his horse when a bullet hit him in the groin and ranged up his body. Kemper called the wound, quote, unquote, excruciatingly painful, which was no doubt an understatement. Kemper was close enough to the stone wall that several Federals came out and, placing him on a blanket, started to make off with him. But some of Kemper's men, seeing what was happening, rushed over and recaptured him from the Yankees. They carried him back to Seminary Ridge, but Kemper, as it turned out, was too badly wounded to join the Confederate retreat from Gettysburg and was left behind. He spent some time in captivity before being exchanged for Brigadier General Charles Graham from Sickles' Third Corps, who was captured on July 2nd. With both Garnett and Kemper down, the moment now belonged to Lou Armistead. Still waving his hat on his sword, Armistead urged his men onward, and at a run they closed up behind Kemper's and Garnett's jumbled lines. At about this time, the 53rd Virginia's color bearer, Sergeant Leander Blackburn, with whom Armistead had shared a drink from his flask, was mortally wounded by a shell fragment. The entire nine-member color guard of the regiment would fall, with eight of them killed, it would eventually take five men to carry the 53rd's colors to the stone wall. One of them was Private Tyler Jones, grandson of former President John Tyler, who dropped the colors only after being wounded twice. The last man to bear the flag, Lieutenant Hutchings Carter, was lucky to survive. After the charge, after being taken prisoner, he counted 17 bullet holes in his coat but he came away without a scratch. Thousands of Virginians from all three of Pickett's brigades crowded together in one dense, confused mass. In the final stretch of gently rising slope in front of the stone wall, their advance had lost its momentum, as many of the men did their best to stand their ground while trading shots with the Yankees, who were now less than 100 yards away, while others kept pushing forward. Captain Henry Owen of the 18th Virginia wrote that, quote, All knew the purpose was to carry the heights in front, and the mingled mass from 15 to 30 deep rushed toward the stone wall, 
over ground covered with dead and dying men, where the earth seemed to be on fire, and the smoke dense and suffocating, the sun shut out, but the division, in the shape of an inverted V, pushed forward, fighting, falling, and melting away. At the forefront of the mingled mass that Owen described was Louis Armistead. Organized regimental lines had disintegrated, and the men still moving forward toward the stone wall did so in a loose swarm dotted with battle flags. Like a wave rolling toward the shore, several hundred of Armistead's troops, joined by men from Kemper's and Garnett's brigades, surged forward in one final determined push. Inside the Federal line, John Gibbon was struck down, wounded by a bullet that tore through his left arm and shoulder. Brave Alonzo Cushing fell dead beside his guns when a bullet entered his open mouth as he shouted orders. Second Corps Commander Winfield Scott Hancock had ridden the entire length of his lines from Ziegler's Grove in the north down to the position held by Stannard's Vermonters to the south. After talking with Stannard, Hancock turned his horse back north, but had gone only a short distance when he suddenly reeled in the saddle. Several officers rushed to Hancock's assistance and lowered him to the ground. A bullet had struck the pommel of his saddle, driving a piece of a bent ten-penny nail into his thigh. It was an ugly, painful injury, and Hancock would suffer the effects of it for the rest of his life. Now blood poured from the wound, and Hancock told those helping him, Don't let me bleed to death. Get something around it, quick. After receiving aid, and the assurance his wound wasn't life-threatening, Hancock refused to leave the field until the outcome of the enemy charge had been decided. His wait would not be long. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Pickett's Charge in History and Memory by Carol Reardon. This is an excellent book by Reardon, uh, not so much about the specifics of the charge itself, but a look at why Pickett's Charge still looms so large in the public's imagination. She shows how the story of the charge we know today is a mix of myth and history and memory, with the different parts of that formula having been manipulated and shaped and revised over the years. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then, as we wrap up this episode, we want to give a shout-out to all the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. Thank you for your support of the podcast. And thanks to all of those who have made donations recently. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.